This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Uh, I'll read a couple in a moment or two. Uh, But in a court of law, a man must present his case. He has to produce a body of evidence to support his claims. He must be able to convince the court of the veracity of his statements. He must be able to tell and to prove the truth uh, of what he's speaking about to the jury to convince them. So therefore, he must tell the truth, the whole truth, and absolutely nothing but the truth. What about Christianity? Can we present a claim, a case for Christianity that any reasonable, open-minded person uh, would be willing to accept? What would be our evidence? What would be our testimony to that? What would be our reasons to believe? First of all, I think we should start at the credibility of its founder. Every religion, every faith has got a founder. Christianity obviously is founded upon Jesus Christ. Why is he different than all others? How come that after 2,000 years, he's still the most popular religious figure in the world? Why is that? Why is it worldwide that Christianity, the religion he founded, is still the biggest religion on the face of the earth. What could possibly account for that? John Blanchard in his his book, uh, Is God Passed to Sell by Date? Uh, Blanchard has some great titles for his books. One of his best books is, Does God Believe in Atheists? (laughs) Which I think is just a great title, isn't it? He said on the 11th of October, 1999, The world population officially reached 6 billion. It's now near 7 billion today. Bringing the running total total of human beings in history to about 60 billion. The overwhelming majority of these are now unknown. Some had localized or temporary influence, but comparatively few had a major effect upon human history. But nobody has left a deeper mark on the human culture than the subject of the essay for which I have quoted, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was born in Israel about 2,000 years ago. The noted American historian, Kenneth Scott Latourette wrote, Jesus, the seeming failure, has had more effect on the history of mankind than any other of its race who has ever existed. While even a skeptic like the novelist H.G. Wells admitted that Jesus was easily the dominant figure in history and that nobody could write the history of the human race without giving Jesus the first and the foremost place. These testimonials become all the more remarkable in the light of the following facts. His exact date of birth is not known, yet human history is divided into the years before he was born and those since then. He never wrote a book, yet more books have been written about him than any other person, and the demand for more seems insatiable. 
He never painted a picture, composed any poetry, or wrote any music. Yet nobody has inspired more paintings, poetry, plays, songs, films, videos, or other art forms. One film based upon entirely on his recorded words has been produced in almost 500 languages and has been already seen by more people than any other in history. That's the Jesus video, by the way. He never raised an army or led an armed rebellion, yet millions of people have laid down their lives in his cause, and thousands still do every year. Except for one brief period during his childhood, his travels were limited to an area about the size of Wales. But today his influence is literally worldwide, and his followers form the largest religious grouping the world has ever known. His public teaching lasted only three years and was restricted to a few parts of one of the world's smallest countries. Yet today, purpose-built satellites and some of the world's largest radio and television networks beam his teaching around our planet. He set foot in just two countries. Yet today, an organization committed to his cause flies regularly to more countries than any of the world's commercial airlines. He had no formal education, but thousands of universities and seminaries and colleges and schools have been founded in his name. During his lifetime, he was virtually unknown outside his own country. Yet, in the current edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, the entry under his name runs to some 30,000 words. C.S. Lewis said he was either a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or he was indeed the Lord. We have no evidence that he ever lied. Certainly wasn't a lunatic. He was the sanest man that ever walked the planet. We know he wasn't a legend because historians wrote about him, Josephus and others. So that must mean there's only one thing left. He was and is the Lord. He walked in water, he raised the dead, he multiplied bread and fish, he stammed, calmed the storms. He did so many miraculous things. His conception was supernatural. His death was unique. His resurrection was miraculous. His life was unparalleled. Think about his claims. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the light of life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. No one else could make those claims. And by his action and by his words, he declared himself to be God. He received worship and praise and adoration unto himself. Not even the angels would dare to do that. But he did it. He claimed that he was pre-existent. Before Abraham was, I am. He claimed that he and the Father were one. He said that expressly, I and the Father are one. He claimed that he was the revealer of the Father. Philip said, show us the Father and it will be sufficient. He says, have I been with you so long a time that you have not known the Father, he that has seen the Father has seen me. He claimed equal glory with the Father in John 17. He prayed that his disciples would be with him and that they would see him in his glory which he had with the Father before the world 
begun. Think of his spoken word. He cursed the fig tree. He calmed the storm. He raised the dead. All by simply his spoken word. And so the credibility of our founder is tremendous. It is indeed unparalleled. There is no other religious leader that this would even come close to. And so we're on safe ground tonight. Then by the reliability of its word, all the great religions have all had their sacred writings and teachings. But how reliable are they? Could we trust them? What did they produce? Can they be proven? Can they be shown to be real? With regard to their geography, their history, their archaeology. Think of Mormonism, for instance. You know, with all the claims that Mormonism has made, they could never ever prove any of it through history or geography or archaeology. Can't be done. Why? Because it's not true. It's not real. Many of the ancient locations that Luke wrote about in the book of Acts has been identified through archaeology. In fact, in all 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands, all mentioned by Luke without error. So we can trust these writings. They're accurate geographically, historically, and archaeology, again, is finding them true to this day. The Bible has continuity. It has got unity. Written over a period of 1,500 years or so by 40 different writers, uh, most of whom never met, living in different generations. And yet there is a central theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation. No other writings has ever been able to do that. Only this book. Historians, archaeologists have repeatedly found its truth to be accurate. New discoveries are being found continually, and every new discovery refutes <laughs> all of those naysayers, all those deniers, all of those who say, well, that's not true, and that's not true, and that's not true. Suddenly, we find a rock somewhere, we find writing somewhere that proves that the Bible was true all along. What about science? Science is often used today to reject the Bible. Isn't it interesting that most of the great scientists of old were believers? And it was because of the Bible that they followed the trail of science. And today it seems to be the opposite. Although the Bible is primarily a spiritual book, a moral book, no question about that, yet if it's God's own word and we claim it to be, then it must be scientifically true as well. Now, the Bible doesn't really use scientific terms, but that doesn't mean that it's non-scientific. One writer puts it this way. He says, suppose you were enjoying your Christmas dinner and someone asked if you would like some more. Well, in scientific terms, you might say this. 
Gastronomic satiety admonishes me that I have arrived at a state of deglutition consistent with a dietic integrity. <laughs> That's a mouthful, and I'm not going to repeat that. Which simply means, no thanks, I've had enough. And so the Bible, even though it's not written in scientific terms, yet it does make some scientific statements. So what are the, some of the things that we find in Scripture that has proven science to be true? Up until the 17th century, and that's not a long time away, but up until the 17th century, man had no idea how rain was formed and how rivers and streams provided a continual cycle of water to water the earth. They had no idea. They wondered. And in the 17th century, hydrology was discovered, the science of it all, which is really basically three things, evaporation, transportation, and precipitation. The seas by the sun get sucked up and they form clouds. Evaporation. Transportation, the winds blow them to the high areas of the earth, to the mountains and to the hills. And then they burst there. Precipitation, rain. Sometimes, actually, if it's high enough and cold enough, it turns to snow, and it lies there to the summer, and then it gradually melts. Forms streams, it forms rivers. The rivers and the streams, where do they flow? They flow into the sea, and then the sea evaporates, and the whole cycle begins all over again. So what do you say? That's obvious. It wasn't obvious to the 17th century. Man hadn't got a clue. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, listen to what it says, verse 7. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Why is that? Evaporation. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. <laughs> now, of course, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. But he wasn't a scientist. But somehow or other, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew that. In Job 36, I'll just read a couple of these selected verses tonight just to give you a little bit of an idea. Job 36, reading verse 26, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him nor can the number of his years be discovered. For he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. <clears throat> you see, there it was there all along. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunder from his canopy? It was there all along. If only they had read the Word of God, they'd have got a head start. But it wasn't until the 17th century that it all began to make sense. Meteorology. Galileo, discovered in the 17th century again. 
that the major wind currents of the world followed well-defined circuits. Two and a half thousand years ago, Solomon writes about this. In Ecclesiastes 1 verse 6, the wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The winds whirl about continually and comes again on its circuit. (laughs) Somehow or other, without the science that we have today, without the accoutrements that we have in science today, somehow or other, they knew that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord Kelvin, great British scientist, he made an amazing discovery. Again, these things were unknown to relatively recently. And his amazing discovery was that rain will never fall unless there is first an electrical discharge of some degree. That was an amazing discovery. And he was the first man to discover that in recent times. (laughs) Because again, the scriptures make these things a lot clearer. In Job 38... Verse 25 and 26. Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man? And then in Job 28, verse 26. When he has made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, there's your electrical charge. Psalm 135 is a clincher. Psalm 135, verse 7, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, or the waters, that is, to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasures. He makes lightning for the rain. So all along, right there in Scripture, we see that it's written for us. And it took all of those years for modern man to find it. In astronomy, for thousands of years, men have tried to count the stars. Apprentice said that there were 1,022 stars. Tolmany said there was 1,056. Kelper said there was 1,055, and he's very definite about that, until Galileo and others came along with uh, telescopes. <laughs> and they discovered that they couldn't count them. And now in our modern age with Hubble telescope and massive land-based telescopes, we have found that our Milky Way galaxy has at least somewhere between 100 and 200 billion stars. 
and that's only one galaxy out of billions upon countless billions. No wonder the scripture in Job, no wonder the scripture in Jeremiah 33, 22 says, the host of heaven cannot be numbered. <laughs> and yet the Bible says that God numbers the stars. He numbers them, but we can't number them. Something else about the stars astronomers have recently discovered, every star is different. Every star has got its own peculiar signature. Every star has got a radio signal. Uh, I read just relatively recently where uh, one of these top astronomers said that if we could record all of the individual signals coming from the stars and put it all together, he said, this was his own word, it sounded like a celestial orchestra. I wonder, is that what God meant in Job 38 and 7? He said, where were you when the morning stars sang together? Maybe that's God's celestial orchestra. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Apostle Paul was a theologian. He wasn't a scientist. He was a smart man, but he wasn't a scientist. In 1 Corinthians 15, when he's the resurrection chapter, and he's liking our bodies and so forth, he says, verse 40, he says, There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. Whether he fully understood, he maybe was thinking of brightness, and that's obvious when you look at the stars, you can see that. Some are different colors. But not only are they different that way, but everyone is uniquely different. Everyone has got a different signal to it. And we're just now discovering these things. There's a time when men thought the earth was flat. The Hindus believed that it was held up by elephants. Isaiah 40, verse 22, talks about the circle of the earth. How did, how did anybody 700 years before Christ know that there's the circle of the earth? How did they ever know that? Written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Job writes in Job 26, 7, it says, he hangs the earth upon nothing. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Here we are. Spinning in this globe on upon nothing. <coughs> Biology, 1628, William Harvey discovered the circular system of the, of the blood, showed that the blood was the key to life. Moses wrote in Leviticus 17:11, "The life of the flesh is in the blood." And we're only now discovering how important our blood circulatory system is to our whole bodies. Think about this for a moment. All of you who have got a camera, a digital camera, if you've got one on your smartphone, it works the same way. There's a little chip inside it, CCD chip, charged coupled device. And on that little chip on the surface of it, as it were, divided up into little areas, if there's a million on it, that's one megabyte chip. A million little areas. And whenever the light comes in through the camera and hits those little areas, it forms a picture. And the more of those little areas are in your chip, 
if there's one megapixel or it's five or it's 20 or whatever, then the sharper your picture will be, be more defined. Sorry, you Nikon camera buffs, but Canon has got one out which you could buy for an expensive price. It's 50 megapixels. And they say when they take a shot of a city with that, and they blow, you can blow that thing up and blow it up and blow it up and blow it up. It's amazing what you can see. It's so sharp because of all those little pixels. Pixels short, pixels really are made up where it means picture element. That's what a pixel means. Now here's the thing. If you translate it into your eyes, if you translate that same principle into your eyes, your eyes have got 136 million megapixels. <laughs> I think I've lost a few along the way. I think a few of mine has gone AWOL. That's why I need these old specs on all times. Take these off. It used to be I couldn't read the telephone book. Now I could hardly read anything. Now I have to take these off. And some of you are the same, so you need to laugh. You're the same. And so God has given us an incredible ability in this body that we have. Think of the wonder of creation. Think of this earth that we are on tonight. The Goldilocks planet, they called it, because it's just right for us. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right for us. It's 8,000 miles in diameter. Vital, absolutely vital for the existence of life. A variation in just 1% would make it uninhabitable. Imagine if it was 1% less, it was 7,200 miles in diameter. Due to the lower gravity, our breathable atmosphere would leach off into space. And all would be left would be the heavier elements like carbon dioxide and other gases that would suffocate us to death just by 1%. Suppose it was to swell. Suppose it was 8,800 miles in diameter. This would double the weight of the atmosphere. And it would probably lead to the whole earth being a wasteland of snow and ice. In fact, if the earth was a lot bigger and our gravity was a lot bigger, it would crush our very bones. We couldn't survive. And if it was a lot smaller, we would have less gravity and we would have less bone density. The astronauts in space that are flying around our head even tonight as we speak, you know what they're doing? They're exercising hours every day because the moment they go into space, their bodies begin to lose bone density. The very moment they go in until the day they come out. In fact, it takes about six months or up to a year, depending on the person, before that bone density is back to normal again. So just 1% of a difference. And this is why our earth is so precious and it's so right for us. Think of the earth orbiting around the sun 365 and a quarter days every year. Tilted at 23 and a half degrees, that gives us our seasons. Rotating on its axis at a thousand miles an hour. That gives us 12 hours a day and 12 hours a night. It's gone at 66,000 miles an hour. Do you realize that from this time last night to tonight, 24 hours, we have traveled one and a half million miles through space? That fascinates me. 
I can hardly get my head around that. And it's been doing that since God has ever created it. The length of our year is very important. Probably more important than we think about it. It's important for our crops, important for our harvests. It's long enough for the harvest to grow, but it's not too long that we have to wait till the next harvest. It's just absolutely right for us. What if we were in Uranus? 84 years is equivalent to one year for us. That'd be a long time to wait for the next harvest, wouldn't it? Or what if you're in Mercury? It's only 88 days. Their year's only 88 days. Distance from the sun, 93 million miles. Not too far. Not too close. Not too hot. Not too cold. Average temperature is about 15 degrees. Celsius. There's somebody looking for ferns. Don't they know you're in church, brother? <laughs> I know the North Pole and South Poles are cold and the equator's hot, but overall average 15 degrees. Just absolutely perfect for life on Earth. Venus is 67 million miles, so that's a lot closer to the sun. It's 470 degrees Celsius. How would you like to go there for your holidays? Hmm? You burnt that crisp. Mars at 141 million. It's a lot further away. It's minus 50. And sometimes it's closer to the Earth, sometimes further away, because its orbit is elliptical. It's not circular. That's why these people who want to go to Mars, it's going to take two years to get there and back. Because they're going to jump on when it's closest to Earth. And then they're going to go on the way out. And then when it comes back close, they'll jump off. That's the plan they have anyway. But just a few degrees more would be a disaster for us. That's why the scientists today are so worried about, they keep talking about this global warming business. And they say, if the Earth just heats up another two degrees or three degrees or four degrees, and it's true, another three or four degrees, we would be in serious, serious trouble. Do you ever think about our winds? I know we get some storms, but because our earth spins at a thousand miles an hour, that just causes our circuits of our winds to be just about right for us. If you're in Jupiter, the winds are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles an hour that rip you apart. But we're just right. God has made this planet just for us. And we know today they're searching for other planets. They say, well, there must be, if there's billions of planets, there must be other planets like ours, but they can't find them. The thought of us being alone in the whole universe, they can't handle that. The thought of us being a special case in the universe, they can't handle that. But we are. We are a special case. The old moon, which is a wonderful thing, you ever look up at the moon? Maybe it's a half moon or it's a quarter moon. And you see that lighted side and that darkened side and that bit down the middle is the terminator. It's amazing the difference between those two areas. On the lighted side, it's 135 degrees Fahrenheit. And on the darkest side, it's minus 150 degrees Fahrenheit. 
That's why whenever the astronauts are there, <laughs> that's why whenever the astronauts went there in the 60s, they only could spend a few hours on the lighted side because they couldn't go into the cold side. Apart from being pitch black, it would be so cold. That's why their suits cost millions of dollars because it's so hostile. Do you ever think about the moonlight and you go out in a lovely moonlit night? Do you ever realize that it's just perfect for us? Seven degrees of sunlight bounces off the moon to us. If, we were, if the moon was Venus, it would be 10 times that. It would be over 70 deg 7 degrees of sunlight just bouncing off. We couldn't stick that. Sure, we couldn't. But it's just nice. Moonlight is just right for us. And the Bible says that God has set the sun and the moon and the stars to lighten the earth. Do you ever consider that our point in the Milky Way, that we're three quarters of the way out and we're in a spiral arm, if we were closer to the middle, you wouldn't have one sun, you might have a hundred suns around you and we'd be scorched to death. Imagine if there's two suns. Imagine that if there's two suns, only one sun, thank God for it. We're just exactly where God has placed us to be, just right. The sun is a, moon is a perfect reflector. Look at the taillights of your car. You'll see there's all those little dimples on it. Look at the taillight and a, and a pushback. It's all little dimples on it. Why is that? Because it reflects the light. Look at all the craters on the moon. It reflects the light, just enough light. That's why they discovered life in the moon. They says there's big craters and weak craters in it. Earth's atmosphere is just perfect for us. 21% oxygen, 78% nitrogen, 1% argon, and a few trace elements. If it was 50% more, you couldn't strike a match, because if you did, you'd blow everything up. If it was just 1%, you couldn't strike a match. In fact, nothing would burn. But it's just absolutely perfect for us. Earth's magnetic field, anybody that's ever seen the northern lights, that's because of our magnetic field. That shows you in very practical ways what we're saved from, all of that sun's energy, all of those protons that are coming from the sun, all of that <laughs> photocells that are coming from the sun that would radiate us if it wasn't for that magnetic field that bounces that away. And it's the interaction between the solar winds and our magnetic field that causes those rippling effects, the northern lights, which are absolutely beautiful. But it's there for a purpose. It's there to save us from being radiated. Thank God for it. Do you know there's some stars and the magnetic field is so, they're called magnetic stars. The magnetic field is so strong that if you had a knife and fork, it would pull them out of your hands at a distance from here to the moon. <laughs> Why am I telling you this? To show you that this earth, which is God's footstool, is made specifically and particularly and only for us human beings to live on. Hmm. The Earth's oceans are God's central heating system for this world, particularly the Gulf Stream. Gulf Stream comes, by the way, do you know it comes down the Southern Iron, right around the coast of Kinsale? You can get shark fishing down there. It's all the way up, even around the coast of Iceland, between it and Greenland. And the Gulf Stream is, is, is part of God's central heating system for this earth. And scientists are always very worried about the Gulf Stream. 
if it doesn't flow in the direction that it's supposed to, and sometimes it changes direction, and it causes all kinds of problems to our weather. Because God made us to live in this planet, and he's made it perfect for us. We're almost finished. Just about every liquid you could mention, when it gets to freezing point, it contracts, except water. Water gets the freezing point, it expands. It's a mystery. But it's good that God has done that. Because if water was to freeze, then the waters in the sea at the poles, particularly the Arctic, if they began to freeze and they contracted, then that ice would drop down to the bottom and it would build up and up and up until the whole sea was just a block of ice and nothing could live or survive in it. But it doesn't do that. Instead, it expands and it floats to the top and it causes a layer of ice, which means the warmer water is underneath that and it means that all life forms underneath that survive and thrive because of that. It's a mystery. But God has done that. And so that's the God that we serve, the Christ that we know who's the creator of all of these things and more that we haven't time to talk about, sun and the moon and the stars to give light upon the earth, Psalm 115, 16, the heavens, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. Glory to God. Romans 1.20, God reveals himself as the creator so that man is without excuse. But he sent his son to reveal himself as the redeemer. And Christ came to redeem us. So the purpose of nature is to reveal himself in a general way as creator, but the purpose of his word is to reveal himself in a special way. And the purpose of sending his son is to reveal himself in a particular, specific way as our redeemer. So isn't God good? Amen. Isn't he so perfect in all of his ways that he has made all of this absolutely perfect for you and I to live upon. And if something was just slightly changed, it would cause us great problems. But thank God, as long as the earth remains, there'll be winter and summer and there will be cold and heat. So don't worry about your global warming. I'm not in the least worried about it. I know it's a big subject today. And people's getting all head up about it. It's become a whole industry. But as long as the earth remains, there'll be summer and winter, and there'll be heat and there'll be cold. It'll be as God intended it to be until he comes and he makes it a new heavens and a new earth. Glory to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your exactness, for your preciseness even in creation. Thank you, Lord, that you cared so much for us that you made this world to be habitable just for us as human beings, made in your image after your likeness. Lord, regardless of what the evolutionists say or the atheists or the naysayers, Lord, we thank you for your word that is always true. 
And Lord, even these secrets were hidden for men for all those years were in your word all along. And we thank you for them. We thank you that you're revealing these mysteries to man today. And we bless you for that. And so, Lord, man is without excuse tonight. All he's got to do is look and see and see you as the creator of the ends of the earth. But Lord, we know you as our redeemer tonight. And we thank you for that above all things. You're the one who saved us, who washed us in your own blood, who put our names in your book of life. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.